right, <clears throat> we are back in John's letters today. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. <clears throat> 1 John chapter 2. And we are beginning in verse 12 today. So let's look at our text together. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Father, I pray for, first and foremost, our hearts in our minds this morning, that you would help us to understand the text. And as our minds understand the text today, I pray that you would convict our hearts that these things are true, that we might be changed by them, that we might grow in our maturity in Christ today, all for your glory, for your namesake. Purify your bride today as you sanctify us in your word. And your word is truth. I pray also for my voice this morning. I pray that you would give me the strength, as would be your will, to say what I believe you are saying to us all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a lot more people in the room than there normally are. And so, I'm not so sure why that amen was so weak. I mean, <clears throat> do you want to try again or no? Uh, Okay, I heard one sure, so I guess we'll do it. Okay, uh, amen. amen. Thank you. See, that's much better, isn't it? When we look at our text today, you'll notice, even in my Bible, you can see that it looks different. Does it look different in your Bible? The formatting of the text is different? Why might that be? What, what makes this text stand out this morning? Well, our text, first of all, is divided into two sections. I want you to see it with me. Uh, <clears throat> I have, as a kind of a reminder, because I know it's been a little bit since we've been in the text, but just remember that we're reading the words of John the Apostle. When did this take place? At the end of the first century, 85 to 95. And this is just a letter written to, actually, a ma it's a general letter, meaning it's written not to one specific church, but to kind of a mass of churches, uh, specifically located in Asia Minor. And I think I even have my map, which I love, uh, <clears throat> right there. So there it is. Those are the seven churches of Revelation circled right there. And this is John writing to this area uh, with these letters. What do we know about John's original audience? Just a couple of things. And we're reminded of those as we read this text today. They were believers. They needed instruction. They were being deceived. And they needed assurance. All things that we need uh, today. Okay, so as we look at our text, notice that it's divided really in two sections because we read it and then we basically read it again because it's, it's like it repeats, okay? So look, I, I have it broken up in these two sections on the screen for you. Uh, verses 12 through 13, 
first part of 13. And then 13 through 14, and it addresses little children, fathers, and young men. And then it addresses again children, fathers, and young men. You notice it does it twice? Does this mean for us that if you're not a child, if you're not a young man, and if you're not a father, that the text does not apply to you? Because that's who he's addressing. Wouldn't you agree? No, I see a lot of head nods. Uh, it's not specifically addressing these dedicated groups of people. And we feel that, and we, we, we kind of understand, I believe that that's true, but why? Why do we think that? Don't you think that we ought to be able to argue our way through that and say, here's why it's not addressing specifically children, young men, and fathers? When he says little children, what does this do to our minds, and how do we think about this in a different way? Go back to chapter 2, verse 1. Just look at it. How does it begin? Chapter 2, verse 1. What does it say in your Bible? My little children. And who was he talking to then? He was talking to all the believers. And so when he addresses them, my little children, who's he talking to? He's talking to them all. He's talking to all believers. Well, what about this business of the young men and the fathers? Well, here's how we can understand it. Little children are all the true believers. That's kind of our main heading, main category. And then it's further broken down into two categories, being fathers, that is older believers, and young men, that is younger believers. How do we see this? Well, I made kind of a little image here for you to help, help with understanding. If we see that this is little children at the top, which is all true believers, this is being addressed to all of us. And so when John then says to the older believers and then to the younger believers, he means the old and the young and everybody in between. There are old people in this room. Right? Yeah. There are young people in this room, are there not? This is addressing those who are old, those who are young, and everybody in between. This text is addressed to you this morning. I want you to know this for sure, because what John is about to say, I believe, is very powerful to us. So what's the point? To distinguish between old and young, men and women? Obviously not. John's been writing to make a distinguishment, though, between a couple of different groups. But it's not between men and women, and it's not between old and young. Who is, the, who is he? He's got two groups in mind this whole time. From the beginning of the letter, he has two groups in mind. But it's not old people and young people. It's not men and women, boys and girls. No, those aren't the groups. Who are the groups? The believing and the unbelieving. Those who know God truly and those who simply say they know God but don't. Those are the two groups. So as he talks, he is addressing specifically now in this moment all the true believers. He even calls us little children. His little children because his heart is reaching out to us. He has affection for the believers and we can hear it. What is John's intention? Uh, I, I think simply we need to just understand that he's wanting to provide encouragement and support to all believers. Up until this point, he's been giving kind of detailed instruction. Even if we go back to it, all the wording has been different. This is the message that we have heard. God is light, in him is no darkness at all. You can't say you have fellowship with God while you walk in the darkness. He's giving instruction, instruction, instruction. He's, giving, he's teaching us, teaching us, teaching us. But now, what is he doing? 
he's appealing to our hearts. And it, the, the tone completely changes. And I want you to see it. He's reaching out to us. He has encouragement to offer. He has support to offer. He wants to not only encourage your heart, but to fortify your faith. You ever find yourself in need of spiritual encouragement? You ever find yourself in need of fortification of your faith? I need better faith. I need it to be supported. You know, yesterday, <coughs> I had to fortify something. Uh, we have a, if you've ever been to my, my, new, my new house, which is an old house, if you've ever been to it, my back deck is at a serious angle. I mean, I don't know what was going on here when they built this thing, but like, here's a normal deck. Mine was like this. And I, it was actually built that way. You might think, well, it just, no, it was built that way. I don't know why. But yesterday, I cut the supports and I jacked the deck up and I brought it level and then I reinforced it from the bottom with some four by four posts because I didn't want the thing to move. I don't want your faith to move. John does not want your faith to move. He, he wants it to be supported, to be fortified. And he's going to offer that help to us today. How does he do that? Well, let's look at our text. <clears throat> First John 2, beginning in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, if you're looking at the screen, you'll notice that the wording is possibly a bit different than your Bible. In the ESV, it reads, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Now, this is just a matter of how the Greek is expressed here in different tenses. And really have been is, is far better of a translation. You know, in English, we have a past tense, you did something. We have a present tense, I'm doing something. And we have a future tense, I will do something. Well, in Greek, there's an additional tense called the perfect tense. I know we're not in Greek class this morning, but it's actually significant for us understanding what he's saying. He's saying that there was a past event that is finished, but you're living in those results today. And this is what this tense is saying. You have been forgiven in the past, and you are living in those benefits here and now today. That's his point. And so that's why I think we need to modify the words here a little bit. I hope that makes sense to you. And so, because your sins have been forgiven, and you're forgiven today, for his name's sake, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning, and you know him still today. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. John's point here in writing is to emphasize true and lasting effects of a genuine profession of faith true and lasting effects of a genuine profession of faith. Were there those that John is referencing that did not have a genuine profession of faith? Has he been talking about that group of people? They had a profession of faith, but it wasn't genuine. And so where were the lasting effects of that profession? Now, I'll ask this practically. Have you ever known someone who had a profession of faith and then you look at their life and you say, how can you be like this after that profession of faith? 
Or have you known someone who made a profession of faith and now they are completely at the opposite end of the spectrum, they've denied the faith? Has this ever been true for you? Have you ever known anybody like that? I know that you have. How do we make sense of that? John's going to help us to understand, and in what way is this encouraging to us? In what way does this support and fortify our faith? Well, he says three things in this text. Number one, this is just simply restating what he said, but number one, your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. Your sins are forgiven in the past. You're experiencing the effects of that reality today. It's not something that you can go back and undo. It's not something that ever you can get yourself out of if it was indeed genuine. Because then he'd have to have a whole other category here, wouldn't he? For some of you, your sins were forgiven, but now you've fallen away from the faith and no longer are your sins forgiven, but you're back in your sin. That's another category of person. That category doesn't exist here. If your sins have been forgiven in the past, you live in that reality today. Is that an encouragement to your faith? You ever find yourself struggling to accept the fact that your sin is truly, genuinely, actually forgiven? Even the most heinous of my sin, even the worst things that I could think of that I have ever done in my life, even that, even that sin has been forgiven? Yes, even that sin. For his name's sake, that's interesting. I, I think a better reading of that would be on account of his name. It's not necessarily saying for his glory. You know, it's saying because of his name. Your sins are forgiven because of Jesus, not because of you. Your sins have been forgiven and you live in that reality today, but it, it, it didn't have anything to do with your doing. It's on account of his name, not on account of your name. Your sins are forgiven on account of his name, what he has done, who he is, not on account of who I am and what I've done. This, again, is an encouragement to our faith. You remember Romans 8, 1 and 2? Some famous text here, but it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How can that be? Because your sins have been forgiven. That's how. There is no longer any condemnation for you because you have been forgiven. And you live in that present reality today. I can see by the looks on your faces that what I'm saying must not be communicating because it gets me awfully excited, but you not so much. Your sin, every one of them, if your faith is in Christ, has been forgiven. Who does that? Have you forgiven everyone who has ever sinned against you? And you are not even God. You have sinned against holy God. And he, the perfect one, your creator, has forgiven you entirely. No condemnation for you, even though that's what you deserve. 
And that is the reality that you live in and breathe in today, now in this moment in your seat, you are forgiven. If you have had a genuine profession of faith in Christ Jesus. And then as John said, he is now the propitiation for your sin. In other words, he absorbs that wrath of God that you deserve and now there is no condemnation for you because the condemnation fell on his son, Jesus Christ. What a reality to live in. Now the wrong thing to do is to walk around with guilt and shame and a sense of overall defeat and hopelessness. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you walked around guilty, with a sense of shame, with a sense of hopelessness, and with a sense of defeat about your life after becoming a true Christian? Now, we have to think, what was my mindset then? Why would I ever place guilt on myself for one who is guiltless? Why would I ever condemn myself as one who is not condemned by God himself? Why would I ever see my situation as hopeless if God is the one who has given me all hope? Do you see how when we have the wrong mindset, the wrong attitude toward our sin, that it actually defeats us rather than living in the victory that he has given us now? Victory over what? Now, I have to be careful with the word victory because you listen to Christian radio and it's like nothing about, it's, it, it's everything about victory, victory over what? I, I, I still have yet to understand what those, there's all this victory about because it seems to be victory over like your financial situation. Of course, we know that's not the case. Victory over relationships, that's not it either. No, it's victory over sin and death. That's our victory. That's the victory we stand in. That is the victory you live in today, now, here. And so how could I ever even in my sin, see myself as one to be condemned, but rather one as forgiven. Forgiven, not condemned. That is us. Tell me, is, is that an encouragement to your faith? I hope that it is, and I hope maybe in the next 20 minutes, the countenance of your face will change because you will start to understand and really live in what we are intended to live in. There is so much in secular philosophy and counseling that says, let go of your past. Let your past die. I am telling you, no, no, no. Don't let go of your past in this way of thinking. Because what John is telling us is, there is a past event where you were forgiven and you must live in that reality today. Don't forget it. Live in the past. Live where your sins were forgiven and remember it every day as you wake up. Remember, I wake up as someone forgiven for my sin today. Not someone who needs to walk with their head hanging low as one who is only to be condemned. But if my last breath were to be this one, I would live forever with my God who created me. Why? Because I have been forgiven. I have been forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, I have been forgiven. And it's not because of me. It's not me. It can never be me. It's because of him. It is for his name's sake. It is on account of his name and not my own. Listen to Isaiah. I, I was reading, and I just 
I, I, I'll be honest, I don't even know how I came across this. I did some kind of, oh, I, I know how. You'd be bored if I told you. <laughs> Isaiah 50, verses 5 through 9. Just make a note of it. I want to read it for you. Isaiah 50, verses 5 through 9. It says, The Lord God has opened <clears throat> my ear. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I know that I shall not be put to shame, for he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who then will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them wear out like a garment, and the moth will eat them up. So who then, on one that God has declared forgiven, not condemned, can you then look at me and say condemned, guilty? We are living in the midst of a cultural revolution that wants to look at Christians and say guilty. All the things we're saying that are true, you have said are not true. You are living against the grain of the culture and there now the finger is at us saying guilty, guilty. There is no one who can point the finger at us and say guilty if God has said forgiven. You need to be reminded of that because it will fortify your faith. It will make you stronger in your faith knowing that as I stand for the truth in the midst of a culture that stands against the truth, no matter what you do to me. Do you, did you hear what was happening to this guy? People were spitting on him and pulling out his beard, making a mockery of him in public, disgracing him. And so he said, and there I stood. And I, I, I turned my back and let the lashes come. But even then, in the midst of them trying to disgrace me, where do I stand? I say in my heart, no one can disgrace me. Because before God, I have been vindicated. Is that the view you have of living in the world today? That no matter what is thrown at you, at work, at school, by your family members, those who do not stand with the truth and they attempt to slander you, they attempt to say that you are the one in the wrong, they attempt to hurl insults at you, publicly shame you. Do you say, although you publicly shame me and that's what people see, my God does not see someone as shamed, but someone who has been forgiven. That is an encouragement to our faith. Be strong. Your God has forgiven you and therefore you are forgiven. Stand in the reality of that today as someone forgiven. We better move on to point two. Number two, you have known him who is from the beginning. So not only have your sins been forgiven, little children, you have known him who is from the beginning. Even the old ones, even the young ones, and everybody in between, John is saying, if you're old and you're a believer, if you're young and you're a believer, turn your attention toward what I'm saying. You have known him from the beginning and you know him today. 
if you have known him, you know him. You know, I, I know that there are many in the room who have moved from another location. You, uh, you used to live somewhere and now you live here. I'm just like you, okay? I, I used to live somewhere else and now I live here. Not just the next county over, a few states over. And so, but some of you are, are from here and you know people from here and, and uh, they knew you in high school and they know you today and they know you. Uh, I think about people I knew back in high school or even my family who I haven't really been around much in 17 years. That was longer than I had anticipated. That's about right, though. And I think how different I am than I was then. So think about it with me. Someone who knew me well, knew me, no longer knows me. Right? Do you know that God is not like this? Why is that? Because God doesn't change. God does not change. If you knew him then, you know him today. God does not change. God is God forever. This is one of his primary attributes. Our God is unchanging. You know, we are ever developing as people, right? We're changing, we're growing. God doesn't have any need to develop. God has developed fully, and he has from eternity past. He doesn't change. He never gains any kind of insight or knowledge so as to make him make better decisions or to modify his morals. No, he's already there, so he doesn't change. You know him who is from the beginning, specifically a reference to Jesus Christ. The reason you have forgiveness of your sins is because you know Jesus Christ. I've talked with you much about knowing versus knowing. To know me is not to know of me, but is to know me intimately. And the more you get to know me, the more you know me. But to simply know of me is not to know me. There are some in this room that I know of, and how do I know of you? Well, I've met you. There are actually some in the room I have not. Make sure that I do before you leave. But I don't know you, but I know of you. There you are. Right? Does that mean that I know you? Now think about this. There are many in this room who grew up knowing of God. Does not mean you know him. Do you hear me? There are some and even organizations, churches that will tell you, if you simply know of God, then you know God. Wrong. Wrong. To know information about God is not to know him. To have faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ is to know God. Because, how do I know that? Because Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. And Jesus said that himself. By this, this is John writing back in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. John's words, not my own. 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not live as they should in obedience to the Lord, proves that you don't know him. You know of him, you do not know him, because if you knew him, that's not how you would be. I want to appeal to you this morning. This, this has been weighing on my heart because I know the culture that we live in here. I'm talking about Sparta, White County. I'm talking about here. You may have known of God from a very early age. You may have been attending church now for some 30 years. For some of you, 10 years. That's okay. That's good. Your church attendance and your knowledge of God does not equal knowing God, does not equal salvation. There is actually a sense of false hope and false assurance that we can tell ourselves. And the things that are told us here, something you can look back and hold on to as assurance of your salvation are your baptism. Or your church attendance or simply a belief that God exists, as long as you believe that God exists, you know, like in country songs. Just a general belief that there is a God that exists, right? Doesn't matter what I do. That's pretty clear in the message of the songs, isn't it? Doesn't matter what I do, I just believe God is good. And if you know the song, you can fill in the rest. Or you might look back and cling to good behavior. See, I've been a pretty good moral person. That proves that I know God. When you look back into the past and you are clinging on to anything other than knowing God in Jesus Christ, you're clinging to something false. The only assurance we have of salvation is knowing our Lord God through Jesus Christ himself. You know him and you've known him from the beginning. You have salvation, forgiveness of sin, and it's not contingent upon your performance but upon God's. Forgiveness of sin and here assurance of salvation. You ever doubted your faith? I know many, I know, I know many have because you come to me and you tell me that. There are seasons of time where I doubt that I'm even a believer. I don't even know if I'm really all sold into this whole Christian thing because some of the things they say and do are kooky. And I don't know that I'm all in. Or may it, maybe it's that you just don't have the passion or the zeal as you once did and so it's not so interesting to you anymore. These are real issues that Christians genuinely struggle with. Know that if you knew him then, you know him now. For those who have been weak in their faith, it doesn't mean there is no faith, but it, need, it means that your faith needs to be fortified. You need to hear what the Lord God is saying to you. Now, I'm not saying, if you said with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you were baptized at seven years old, that means you're a believer. Absolutely not. We've covered that. That's not what that means. It's faith on the Lord Jesus Christ from your heart, knowing that it is only him who can give salvation, not you. You need him to be the propitiation for your sins. And it's a trust, it's a reliance upon him, his goodness, the person and work of Jesus. That is salvation. Now, if you believe that, other things are going to follow. And it's genuine, gen, gen, generally speaking, the things that follow that you start to doubt and you wonder about. Where has my passion gone? Where has my zeal gone? 
don't even want to go to church anymore. Let me tell you, I understand that the struggle is real at times, and it is. To deny that would be to not be honest with ourselves and the struggles that we have as believers. But I want to tell you today, there are those sitting right next to you in this room who have gone through those same things at the same time. Some of you who are young, some of you who are old, we all need to hear this, don't we? And John knew that. You all need to hear this. You all need to be supported in your faith. You all need to be strengthened and supported, fortified in your faith, built up. And isn't it odd that Paul will go on so much to say that we ought to be building up one another? It is important that we gather together and build up one another. It is important. Last thing here that he has just said is, and you have overcome the evil one. So we have a forgiveness of sins, we have an assurance of salvation, and then we have, we've overcome the evil one. Oh, this is pretty good. Well, you have over... You have overcome the evil one, a a past event. That's done, you live in that reality today. I have overcome the evil one. Who is the evil one? That's easy, it's an easy answer. It's Satan, it's the devil, that's easy. We know that, the evil one, there's only one of those. We know who that is. What does it mean that true believers have overcome the evil one? Does it mean that no evil will ever again befall you? doesn't matter where you go, no matter where you do, or where you do, uh, take that for what it is. It doesn't matter where you are in life. It doesn't matter you're you're driving. Okay, I'll admit, uh, this just came to mind for me. I'm going to share it with you because you're going to say, what? I'm going to say, that's how it is. When I was young, I was a new believer. I believed that there was, in a sense, a supernatural bubble formed around me that nothing bad could ever happen to me. I remember that this was a long time ago, okay? I would close my eyes and drive. That's weird. As a complete misunderstanding of what's being said here, please drive with your eyes open. And if, if you can't see, don't drive. I need you to be seeing as you're driving. This is not what this means. That all of a sudden, all believers are now protected by some kind, that no bad is ever going to happen to me. An arrow flies and it stops right before it hits me. It's like, no evil will come to me wrong. That's not what it means that you have overcome the evil one. So then, what does it mean? I have a few single verses and I have them on the screen just so we can read them together very quickly. John 17, 15, look at what it says. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That already has both worlds in balance, doesn't it? Is that you are in, living in a sinful fallen world, but yet we are kept. Second Thessalonians 3, 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and he will guard you against the evil one. Good, I need to be guarded from the evil one. But in what way are we guarded? How am I guarded? Matthew 6, 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from... Evil is not really the right translation, but the evil one is a better translation of that. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
for its clearest context, I look at 1 John 5. He's about to say this in this same letter. He's about to say this. Listen to what it says. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, does not live in a habitual lifestyle of unrepentant sin. But he who is born of God protects him. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus protects him. That is he who was born of God. And the evil one does not touch him. Does not touch him. The evil one does not touch you. So, drive down the road with your eyes closed. No, no evil is going to befall you. No one can hurt me. Wrong. What does it mean? We know that we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, this can be taken wildly out of context. But the whole world is the whole unbelieving world. Lying in the power of the evil one means that you are held captive to do his will. So if we picture Satan kind of as a, okay, as a person, and he has the whole unbelieving world held tight in his arms. And he holds them tightly, and you are bound, and he will move you wherever he wants you to go. You are bound, held captive to do his will. In 2 Timothy, it talks about those who are believers having escaped from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. And so the believer then is taken from the arms of Satan himself and now set free, no longer held captive. In other words, we have overcome his grip and we have escaped the grips, the bonds of Satan himself. And so now we are free. Remember, that you have been set free from captivity to Satan himself. But yet the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, the whole world being people, not the way the world operates, okay? That's God's job. But the unbelieving world, people. So this protection is not about prosperity. It's not about no evil befalling you. It's not saying that you are completely protected from anything bad ever happening to you because if that were the case, why did bad things happen to Jesus, like being crucified? If that were true, then why were all the apostles killed at the hands of lawless evil men, except for John? John will say in the next chapter, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. And so this, by by this means it's evident that those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. But it's written to us for believers, you have overcome the evil one. This is not you. By faith in Christ, you have victory over Satan And now, you are no longer held captive to sin. It all is in relationship to sin. His victory over sin is your victory over sin. You have forgiveness of sin. You have assurance of salvation. You have victory over Satan's grip that holds you in sin. As we turn to the next section, it's incredibly brief because he says the same thing again. And so no need for us to repeat but he does so for emphasis, for rhetorical effect. He says it one way and then he says it again. That's how John operates, remember. He does this a lot. But as we look at the next section, I'm just going to draw two points of application from this as we kind of close together. But he says, 
picking up where we left off in the text. He says, I, ESV says write, it's actually in the past tense, I wrote. I wrote to you children because you know the Father. I wrote to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I wrote to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And so we find much of the same language. In place of your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, we have you know the father. We remember from John's gospel, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my father. So to know Jesus is to know the father. So all these connections make sense to us, don't they? So there are two things here that, that stick out to us in the end. Because John has written these three things, which he says twice, in the perfect tense, meaning past event, but we live in that reality today, okay? So it's just a different perspective on looking at the events, okay? A past reality living in those effects today. No, there are two exceptions, and he gives us them here. You are strong, and the word of God is abiding in you. Do you see it? You are strong, and the word of God is abiding in you. It's in the present. You are being strong, and the word of God is abiding in you. Christians must live each day, every day, in light of the truth of the past. If we don't, we have some serious errors ahead. So we end by looking at these two things as strength for today. How might we apply some of these things? John gives us two ways. He says to them, you are being strong. How does he know that? Does he know each, each of these people individually? This was a general letter, remember? It was written to a whole wide dispersion of churches in, in Asia Minor. Does he know every single individual that will hear this letter? And he says to all of them, you are being strong. It's like me saying to the whole church right now, you are being strong in your faith. I don't know that to be true. So how can John know that to be true? Because what this is is an encouragement for you to be strong in your faith. I think we try to do that with our kids. You're, you're having a good day today. Please remember that. Please remember that you're not a sad person. Please remember that you're not an angry person, right? <laughs> you're having a moment, but please remember who you are. You get the idea? You are being strong. You are being strong in your faith. Are you? What kind of strength? Well, this is spiritual strength, isn't it? Strength that comes from God. For what purpose? To resist sin. Is it true of your life that you are having spiritual strength to resist sin? Or are you being weak? This is a reminder here to be strong. Resist the sin that comes your way. Remember who you are. Remember that you have been forgiven for his namesake. Remember Remember who you are. Remember the condition that you live in. Remember that you know God and that for anyone who knows God, they cannot live and walk in the darkness. They must live and walk in the light. So remember who you are. Live in that present reality today. How? By being strong in your faith. Be strong to resist sin. 
This is what God would have for you. How can we be strong and resist sin if we're not made aware and encouraged and supported by the truth that you already are forgiven for that sin? Imagine if we approach our life as knowing I am already forgiven today. For all the mess-ups and mistakes that I make today, guess what? In Christ Jesus, I am a forgiven person. This changes our outlook on daily life. It doesn't mean I get to do whatever I want. No, no, no. That means I get to have joy for my day and live it for him and even and know that even when I do make a mistake, I confess that sin to God, which means saying to God the same thing about your sin that God said about your sin. Remember that. Confessing to God your sin and repenting. Enjoy knowing you're already forgiven. Second and final thing. The word of God is abiding in you. So you're being strong, right? That's true of us, right? We're being strong in our faith and the word of God is abiding in you, right? What does abiding mean? Remaining, staying, it is present continually in you. Is that true of you today? The word of God is in you, remaining in you today. It is here and it is present. I've just thought of it, and I just, I'd, I'd say it out loud, that there are a couple of shelves outside, and there are some resources that I've made available to you, and they are free. One of those things is a Bible dictionary, which is incredibly helpful in reading the words. Some of them are other books. There's a, a Voice of the Martyrs book out there. There are some, uh, there's, we have 10,000 copies, not literally, but we have a, we, I was going to say a million. I mean, that makes it even worse. We have a bunch of copies of Gentle and Lonely, uh, which are yours to take for free. So look at what we have out there and take with you. Why do I mention that here right now? It is a way, a means by which we can continue to live and abide in the word of God. Do you know that the songs you listen to and what, you, what, what, you're, what you're getting in life is, is kind of overtakes the way you think? and how you operate. So what you're listening to, what you're surrounding yourself with, your conditions, affect the way that you're abiding in the word of God. Let's make sure that on top of all the things we're intaking in the world is the word. I'm living in the word, I'm reading the word, I'm studying the word, I'm reading books about the word, I'm talking to people about the word, and all of a sudden, everything's about the word. I can't help but abide in the word. It's there, it's remaining, it's in me, it's in everybody, it's in the church. It's in our songs, it's in our prayers, it's the word of God, that's what we need. Live and abide in the word of God, that is you, right? The word of God is abiding in me, it's remaining in me, and I'm being strong in it. This is true of me. This should be true of us. It is not a strength that comes from you. It is a strength that comes from God himself. This is the way that God calls us. So as Christians, our past is one that remembers a life outside of Christ. Do you remember your life outside of Christ? I think it's important to remember our life outside of Christ because it helps us to put in perspective our life in Christ. I hope for you that every day, every moment, there is a widening of the distance between the old you and the new you.
there is a widening and a bigger distinction between who you were and who you are. Look at yourself five years ago. I'm, that's not even me anymore. I know more of God today. I love him more today. My life has been made more pure today. I am different. I'm a different person. I continue to grow because we change. We adapt. We grow. God has already arrived. You have not. So we grow. And how do we do that? Together. Together. Do not isolate yourself from the body, but grow in the body as we support one another, as we grow together, as we encourage one another. You may not think you need it. I get it. But the word of God says you do. And we trust that to be true. I hope you have heard the words of John today. I'm glad my voice made it through. I'm glad to be back with you. And I'm excited for all that the Lord has for us and for this church together in the future as we are strong and as the word of God abides in us. Let's pray. Thank <clears throat>